The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, neither the preacher nor the hearer is adequate in and of themselves. We need you to speak. And we likewise need you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to believe, and the strength to bear up under the weight of your unending glory. So Father, from start to finish, we're dependent on you this morning. So we ask you to come and work in a peculiar way, a way that leaves no doubt that you have been here. Allow us to walk out of this place strengthened and encouraged and filled with love and hope. We ask it for your glory and for our good. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are here at the end of chapter 3, reading together verse 14 down through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power from his, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So allow me to tell you where I think God is, is leading us. Four Sunday mornings from today is the beginning of Advent. And it seems to me that it is God's will for us to finish this third chapter in Ephesians heading into the Advent season. Now you all know that we, we never rush. I guess that's an understatement. We never rush. We never cram ourselves into our arbitrary timelines or anything like this. But it seems as though God is leading us to conclude this magnificent prayer that we've already been considering for, what is it, four weeks now. We've been cons considering together this, this marvelous prayer. And if we're going to do that, and we're going to follow our normal pattern of, of really taking time to try to understand what does God actually mean by what he has actually said, that means we've got to return to this text this evening. And so we're going to come back tonight and we're going to pick up on some things that we just don't have time in a one hour sermon this morning to really 
really look at and consider together this morning. I don't feel the least bit sad about that. I'm anxious to get back to our study of Leviticus, but I don't feel the least bit sad about coming back as these, these petitions from the Apostle Paul just pile up. He's leading us towards something marvelous. His request of the God of the universe that we might be filled with the fullness of him. He's leading us towards something that's weighty and it's difficult. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard to convince our hearts that it can be true. And so it's more than worth the time and the effort that we spend trying to understand this. And you've got to remember where we are in this letter. We're coming towards the end of the indicative portion. We're coming towards the end of him telling us what's true about us in Christ Jesus. And then we're going to move into the imperative. We're going to move into the now go do. But if we don't have these things settled, if we don't end at the mountaintop, then the whole thing just becomes a discouragement. If we don't take our time to really consider what the Apostle Paul is saying, what happens is even in the indicative, even is, as we look to who we are in Christ Jesus, you just leave here discouraged. Because you don't find in your own heart the same affections that the Apostle Paul has. So we need to take some time to swim in these waters. So I don't feel the least bit sad at the idea that we're going to conclude our time together this morning. Some of you in your Bible studies will, will touch on some of what we talked about this morning. And then it's my hope that at lunchtime, this will be the subject of your conversation. Then as we come back together and study this word again together tonight, one more bite at the apple at five o'clock tonight. That then as you lead your family in prayer tonight, before you lay down, before you put, a, before you put an end on this Lord's day that he's given you, that this would be the direction of your prayers. That you would have swam in it, you would have so breathed in this air that it just flows out of you. So I'm frankly excited where I think God is leading us here. And this really is one of, perhaps the Apostle Paul's grandest of, of prayers. He, he's already presented all this deep and difficult doctrine. Just think back to all we wrestled with in chapters one and two. All the, all the working of God as the Apostle Paul pulled back the veil to eternity and, and gave us this, this, this view of salvation that most men, they just won't stand for. Many men hate this idea, the God of the universe working out your redemption from eternity past into eternity future. And he's already delivered all this difficult doctrine. And he's not content with these men just having a glimpse of it. He's not satisfied with these men who have come to faith in Christ Jesus and now find themselves as part of this one body, this one people, this one building that he's building. He's not content that they would remain stagnant. He wants for them something more. He wants for them to grow into all the fullness. We'll see this when we get to chapter 4 as he talks about spiritual maturity. He wants them to have an experience of the full maturity that comes when all that Christ is for us comes flooding into our lives. He wants to take us up to the greatest heights of the Christian life. And the way that he does this, you'll remember, is he's praying for us to have an experiential knowledge of Christ. Not, not just know him from a distance, but to have him near. How near? Dwelling in our hearts. Dwelling richly. Settled down. Making a home for himself. Now you remember, we talked last week and made it very clear that the Apostle Paul is already praying to Christian people. These men are already believers, and every believer already has Christ Jesus in their heart. 
We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's by the coming of that Holy Spirit that Christ comes to dwell in the hearts of his people. So this is already a reality, but he's, he's praying for something further, for something greater. Again, I say that Christ would make himself at home, that our hearts would begin to look like the kind of place where Christ is dwelling. And this is a knowing, this is not a, a knowing of the head, but a knowing of intimacy, a knowing that can only come from the presence of Christ in our lives. And I had to wonder, as, as I've as I prayed through this prayer on my own, as I've studied it, as I've, as I've brought it to your attention, I have to wonder, why do we not pray with more earnestness for this? Why do we not pray for more passion for this? Why are we so often satisfied with weak and stagnant and different and passive and just a lethargic spiritual life? I've come to the conclusion that the reality is because it's a costly thing to have Christ dwell in your heart like this. It's a painful thing to have Christ dwell in your heart like this. You see, as long as he's out there somewhere, it's very uninvasive and, and undemanding. As long as Christ is just out there somewhere, as long as he's, he's close enough that I can call for him in times of need. He's close enough that I can pay him a visit once a week if I don't have baseball or something better to do on that Lord's Day. As long as he's just somewhere over there, then yes, that's the Christ I love. You stay there and I stay here and we'll be at peace. But to have Christ to come and dwell richly in your heart like this, to have him start to move some things around, that's the fear. That he might come in and he might start to tweak some things that we had come to like. He might demand some things of us that we had become quite comfortable with. He might stretch our minds to believe things that frankly scare us. He might start to make our heart actually look like a home in which he might dwell. And so we're very comfortable with Christ at arm's length over there somewhere. But the idea that he would come near like this, cutting away parts of us that we had grown fond of, it's a scary thing. It's a difficult thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul prays like this, that we may be strengthened with power. There's so much weakness that besets us. It's the weakness of sin. We're, we're weak in our thoughts. We're weak in our faith. We are weak in our affections. We're weak, we're weak in our willingness to press on towards the fullness of God. We're weak in our willingness to go to war with our sin. We're weak in our willingness to extend forgiveness and mercy and love to our brothers and to our sisters. We're weak. And so what does it require? It requires a strengthening, a strengthening with power in our inner man. It's an inside job. It's a work that must be done. It can't be done with external ordinances. It's got to be an internal work, a work in the inner man or the inner being, as the Apostle Paul says. But this power must come from outside of us. It's a power that must come from above. It's a divine power. It's a heavenly power. We don't have the strength. We can't muster it. Oh, we could follow some rules. That's how you get legalists. That's how you get pietists. That's how you get Pharisees. We can put a bunch of nice rules to make us a bunch of nice, religious, Christian-looking people that have no sense of godliness in our lives. And again, that's very comfortable for us. You give me some rules that I can do in my own power, but you start monkeying with my heart. You start tweaking my inner man. That's when things get real and uncomfortable and scary. So he's praying that they would have strength, strength that Christ might 
come and dwell in their life like this. And we're reminded that man doesn't have it in them to bear up under this kind of weight. Man doesn't have it in them to, to have the, the gaze of God upon them. The, it's, it's a blessed gaze. It's a, it's a gaze of grace and love and mercy. But we don't have it in our own inner man if left to ourselves. In that natural inner man. We don't have it to bear up under the weight of God's, God's eyes bearing down on us like this. I think about King David in Psalm 39. He's, he's praying to God and he's confessing his own sin and his iniquity. And he knows that the judgment of God is, is coming upon his life. And he prays in Psalm 39, 13. Lord, look away from me that I could smile again. If you were here on Wednesday night, you'll remember that we began together praying for revival. We came to Psalm 85, 6, where he says, will you revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We recognize that throughout the history of the church, every place we have seen true, lasting revival, it has always been in places where the word of God was just preached week after week after week. That what seemed to be a spontaneous move of the Spirit of God, you look back through history before that and there was always men and women and children and families and churches that refused to hold on to anything other than the Word of God. So coming to this text, we began praying that God would come in a supernatural way, in an unordinary way. God would send his spirit to bring revival to our families and to our church and to our community. But I warned the people that were here on Wednesday night and I warned you this morning. If God answers this prayer, if God comes and brings revival to hearts and families and churches and yes, even our community, he always brings with it. Revival always brings with it confession of sin, true repentance and a drive towards holiness and holiness can hurt. The refining fire of God can hurt. And there may be times through a process like this where you may be tempted in your inner man, in your natural man and in your weak flesh to look to God and say, God, would you just look away for a second that I could smile again? That's why men don't pray like this. That's why even when I go before God in my prayer closet and I begin to offer up a prayer like this, I find myself saying the words and I want to want it, but I'm always flinching. There's always a bit of cringe to it, wondering, but what if he really shows up? But what if he really works like this? What if Christ really does settle down roots in my heart? What if the fullness of God actually did come rushing into my life? Could I bear it? Am I willing to let loose of what he would demand of me in that moment? It requires strength. A strength in the inner man that we don't have in and of ourselves. That's why he's praying like this. And we come to the second half of verse 17. He continues his prayer. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is, as I've told you, the second of three petitions, as I understand it here in Paul's prayer. The first one was beginning in verse 16, that word that, that's what seems to mark them out, the word that, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he continues on that you, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, 
That, that you actually belongs at the beginning of verse 18. It's not found in the original language, in the original New Testament. It's not actually found right there. What it actually reads is, in love, being rooted and grounded. But the translators apparently wanted to make clear to us that this statement, this being rooted and grounded in love, it flows seamlessly into what comes after it. That thing that he's praying, we would have the strength to comprehend. But we've got to be careful. The way we read our modern translations of the Bible where we've got, we've got heading titles and we've got chapter markers and we've got verse markers, we've got to make sure that we don't believe that this is just some dis, disconnected list of wishes. I'd like for you to be happy and oh yeah, I'd like for you to go to Disneyland and oh yeah, maybe I'd like for you to have a car and oh yeah, maybe I'd like this. There's a, there's a pattern of thought. There, there's a, a building sequence to the way the Apostle Paul is presenting this. That if we're going to be a people who are rooted and grounded in love, that only comes if we're one who are connected to Christ through faith. As Paul was saying in Galatians 5, 6, what we look for is faith working through love. It's impossible to have true love unless we've been connected to Christ through true redeeming faith. Repentant faith. The kind of faith that allows him to dwell in our heart. There will be nothing other than self-centeredness. That's why I prayed the way I did during our time of confession. As I've prayed for Christ to come and dwell in my heart and your hearts like this, as I've considered what the cost of that might be, as I've considered my own weakness and where I need to be strengthened in my inner man in order to experience something like this, what became abundantly clear is there is something within me that is very, very, very self-centered. Much more than I would have otherwise believed and a whole lot more than I want to confess. And I have to believe that some of you are the same. The ability to love, true biblical love, love for God and love for man, it only comes through our connection to Christ Jesus. You can't even love right apart from faith in Christ Jesus. That kind of intimate connection. So we know that if there's real love, it's produced by him. We know if there's a lack of real love, the answer isn't to grunt harder and try to love you people more. It's to turn to Christ and look to him. That's why the Apostle John so often linked these things together. Think about his letter. John's first letter, how often did he say, this is how you can know. How can I know that I'm actually in Christ? How can I know that I've actually been born of God? How can I know that God dwells in me? Because I love. The test of love. Love for man and love for God. It only originates with him. And so we, we see the flow of this argument. Then he says, you've got to be strengthened if Christ is going to set up roots. If he's going to set up shop. If he's going to make himself at home in your heart. Really dwell like this. You've got to be strengthened in your inner man by the spirit of God. And then as he comes, as you're joined to Christ through this kind of faith, then you will find yourself rooted and grounded in love. It always comes back to looking to Christ. But he says with great confidence that this thing will happen. You notice the way he says it, being rooted and grounded in love. He says, if Christ is dwelling in your heart like this, and if you've been strengthened by the Holy Spirit, this is just the natural outflow of it. We've got a video. Allie's going to hate me for telling this story, but we've, we've got a video of Allie when she was a little girl. And um, I don't remember what the girls were eating. What were y'all eating? Like spaghetti or something? What was it? Chicken Parmesan. And it's one of the cutest videos in the whole wide world. You've got Allie sitting in her little high chair, and they're trying to convince her, Allie, eat this chicken parmesan. It's good. You're going to like it. Eat it. You're going to like it. And finally, Allie, in her little two-year-old voice, three-year-old voice, looks and says, don't you know some people don't like what other people like? 
People like what people like, man. People love who people love. The heart has affections for what the heart has affections for. We are commanded to love. It's a commandment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Not just to love our neighbor, but to love our enemies. But people like what people like. The heart loves what the heart loves. I sat in front of the children here as we talked about uh, the, the telos, the the um, during chapel on Monday morning as we worked together through Romans 12 and we were, we were talking about abhorring what is evil. And I painted the picture for them of abhorring means more than I don't like something. It's, it makes me want to puke. You can't just abhor evil on your own. You can't just want to puke at the side of evil on your own. Any more than you can just love your neighbor on your own. It always comes back to, am I in Christ? Am I connected to Christ in true, enduring, repentant faith? Has he made his, heart, his home within my heart? That's the argument that he's building here. This will happen. This will happen. That's why the Apostle John can say with such confidence, this is one of the tests of faith. This is one of the tests if you've been born again. You will be rooted and grounded. Now, what's that mean? What does it mean to be rooted and grounded? Well, rooted is clearly a, a reference to um, agriculture or to, to botany. Plants have roots, and if you have strong roots, then, then you have buried yourself down in the ground in such a way that you're not blown around by the things that happen. And if you have healthy roots, then you're able to draw water and nutrients and, and life, the things that you need for sustained life, from the soil. Whereas the picture of grounded has, a, has an altogether different idea. It, it can also be translated as founded, as in a foundation. Plants have roots. But buildings have foundations. The same root word that's used here in chapter 3 is used back in chapter 2. Ephesians 2.20 says that we are the house of God. Excuse me. The house of God is built on the foundation, same word, of the apostles and the prophets. So again, clearly he's not talking about um, botany. He's not talking about plants or trees or anything like that. He's talking about architecture and construction. So about the foundation of the thing on which it stands. And so just in this one phrase, we see so much of what the Apostle Paul has been talking about previously, that we must be rooted. This is a living and an act, active and a, and a vital connection. This is us finding our, our source of stability and our source of life in something that's outside of ourselves. That's why over and over and over again, Paul talks. He doesn't talk about us as Christians. That's, that's a rare word for him. He doesn't so much talk about us as believers. Sometimes he calls us the saints, but more often than anything, what does he say? You are those who are in Christ. Just as Christ is dwelling in you, this is living and active and vital and life-giving. That's the kind of relationship he's saying, but he goes beyond that to say, and this also must be a firm foundation. You must be built upon something solid. You think about it, if you're building something that's not meant to last, you're building a lean-to or a shanty, you're building a, a tent structure that's going to be picked up and moved in a week or a month or even a year. You don't worry nearly as much about the foundation. But if you're building something that's meant to last, if you're building something that's going to be big and tall and something significant, something that you hope will stand the age of time, then what do you do? You worry a lot about the foundation. I built, I built my own house, not with my hands, but calling contractors and setting this thing up. And 
there were a lot of things that we were willing to skimp on. We would skimp on floors. We don't have floors. We have concrete floors. I stained them so it looks like it was intentional. Maybe drapes or a ceiling fan or countertops. I'm willing to skimp on any one of those things if necessary. But I'll tell you the one place that I was not willing to skimp, the foundation. Because my intention was my family will live in this house. My intention was that this house will stand. So we all have this understanding of it. And what he's saying here is that you must be ones who are rooted and grounded, firmly rooted and well-grounded. Now, this isn't an idea that is unique to the Apostle Paul. Jesus spoke in these same terms. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 25, as he talks about the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. He says that the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. This idea of a firm and solid foundation. Again, we're going to come to it when we get to chapter 4 in Ephesians. God seems to have this desire for his people. The Apostle Paul seems to have this desire for these saints that they be firm and grounded and solid and rooted and immovable. Do you know why? Because there's so much trying to move you off your line. Your own heart, your own sin, and the world and the devil trying constantly to just get you off of your balance, to get you moving off of your line. Colossians 1.22 speaks to us about this. That Christ will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Stable and steadfast and not shifting. That's his desire. And yet how often do we feel like we're being just blown around by the wind? People constantly reacting to everything that comes at us, whether it's circumstances or our own emotions. That we judge the day at the end of the day based on the things that we've seen with our eyes instead of what we've heard with our ears, what we've been told in our hearts. He says you've got to be stable and steadfast and not shifting. First Peter tells us, Peter tells us in his first letter where this comes from. He tells us that even through suffering that Christ is there, that God is working through his spirit to build this kind of steadiness. Again, you can't build it in yourself. He says that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He does the strengthening. He does the establishing. He does the making firm and making sure you don't get blown off your line. So here's the picture. Here's the picture that the Apostle Paul has for these saints in whom Christ dwells. He says that there's an active and a vital and a living connection. But there's also this firm foundation. There's this stability that we will no longer be like children tossed to and fro. We'll no longer be like the rest of the world, always responding and always reacting. That there's going to be a firmness to us and a settledness to us. That's his picture of us. A robust foundation and deep roots. But look at where those roots are found. And look at what the foundation is built upon. Rooted and grounded in love. Don't miss this. You consider the way that the world thinks about love and it's a little more than a warm and fuzzy feeling. Something ethereal and and fleeting. Something that may be here tomorrow, but, you know, I just fell out of love. So it's not there to be found tomorrow. Very much so, love in today's society is a a moving target. The thing that's told, we're told is love today may not be considered love tomorrow. So we're always trying to figure out, okay, what is the language of love today? 
What does the love of the world demand of me today? What lie do I have to tell today to make the world feel loved? So frankly, if we consider love the way that the world talks about love, that would be the stupidest thing you could build your house upon. You would be an utter fool to build your house upon a love like this. But Paul's praying that we would be firmly rooted, that we'd be established, that we would be grounded in a different kind of love. Before we even consider anything about that love, I do need to just call time out and point to your attention the fact that think, think about all the teaching that, that we have seen from the Apostle Paul leading up to this point. Think about all the difficult doctrine. Think about all the ways that he desires for us to know, to know, to know. We get to tonight when we come back to knowing the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. It's about knowing. I want you to know this. I want you to comprehend this. I want you to believe this. So we might be tempted to expect him to say here, I want you to be firmly rooted and grounded in knowledge. I want you to firmly be rooted and grounded in doctrine, rooted and grounded in theology. He doesn't say that. He says love. Because knowledge has the danger to puff up, but love builds up. Now, true doctrine will always lead True, true doctrine, doctrine, rightly understood, will always lead, lead to enduring love. If you understand the things that the Apostle Paul has said, if you really comprehend them in, in your heart, if you have real knowledge, real comprehension of the things of God, it will always transfer to love. It will always drive you to love God and to love your neighbor. But the reality is that you can comprehend in your mind, you can know in your mind all the great mysteries of the world, but the Apostle Paul says if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And if we consider where we're moving next in this prayer, to knowing the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, he's saying unless you're rooted and grounded in love, you can't know that. You can't know the most important things. You can know something about God over there. You can know something about God up here. But it's only with Christ Jesus rooted in your heart, yourself rooted and grounded in love, that you have any hope of actually understanding the love of God that comes your direction. So he's saying here that we must be rooted and grounded in love. This is our love he's talking about. We'll talk about the love of Christ whenever we get to verse 18, whenever we get to verse 19. We'll talk about the love of God for us in Christ. But here he's talking about our love for others. This love which, of course, originates with him. But that's the picture. And this love, if it's going to be the kind of love that comes from Christ being established in your heart, then it's not going to be a fickle and fleeting kind of love. It's not going to be the love of this age. It's not going to be a love that tells lies. It's not going to be a love that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's going to be that kind of solid, robust, well-rooted, established love. The kind of love that you can build your house upon. What is love? What is this kind of love? Love is that thing that desires the best for the other and then works to make that a reality. It's a love that's constantly thinking of others and seeking the best for them. This is the kind of love that he's talking about. This is the kind of love that doesn't pass and change with the ages. And this kind of love will cost you greatly. It looks for what's best for the other person, even if it means that you might not, not have a relationship with that other person any longer. It doesn't condone or wink at sin. It always tells the truth. It encourages and exhorts and confronts whenever necessary. 
It's a love that says, I love the truth and I love you and I want you to be happy 10,000 years from now rather than just right in this moment. So I will do whatever is necessary to bring you to that point, even if it means that you call this hate. Because of the world's definition of love, they will always see this picture of biblical love as something other. Oftentimes, again, calling it hate. It's this love that makes man willing to walk through messy things for the sake of the other and for the glory of God. It's a love that gives up its right to be offended. It's a love that's quick to forgive. It's a love that doesn't go out for a pack of smokes and just never come back. It's a love that presses on through difficult things. Now we read 1 Corinthians 13 at at, uh, weddings often, and it's an appropriate place to read 1 Corinthians 13 because you're talking about love, and certainly the kind of love that God desires for us to have in Christ Jesus is the love that's got to permeate the entirety of our marriage and our rearing of our children and our home life. But very rarely do we stop and consider what that looks like in a context like this. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those are simple. You realize this, right? And we could do a hundred sermons on this, but the reality is that even as I just read those words to you, you immediately have a picture in your mind of what it looks like to be patient and kind in love. You immediately know what it looks like to not envy or boast in love, to not be arrogant or rude in love, to not be irritable or resentful. You already know the picture. You have the picture in your mind, and you already know all the ways you've failed in every single one of these. It isn't a question of the knowing. It's a question of the strength of the inner man. It's a question of being rooted in Christ. This is the picture of the kind of love that he's saying you build your life upon. There's nothing more stable in all the world than this. Paul say at the end of that letter, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Perk up. You don't know what it looks like to act like a man and be strong? Let all that you do be done in love. Real men love. Put on your big boy britches and love. You know what it looks like and you know what needs to be done. So let me call time out right now. There are some of you sitting in this room right now who know you have not acted in love. And you know exactly what you need to do to act in love. You have not acted towards God in love. You have not acted towards your wife in love. You have not acted towards your children in love. You have not acted towards your enemy in love. You have not acted towards your neighbor in love. You're sitting here right now and you hate my guts because I'm forcing you to think about that way that you know you have not acted in love. You don't need some counselor to come along and help you think it through. You don't need some brilliant word from scripture. What you need is your inner man to be strengthened. You need to be a man Buck up and do it. And you are utterly and totally incapable unless Christ is dwelling richly 
in your heart. Do you see it? It's the only chance you have of enjoying the blessings that Paul's praying for next. The only chance you have of bearing up under what comes next. He says, you can't. This is the only foundation, a foundation that is built upon love. That's the only way that you can ever know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, be filled with all the fullness of God. The only way you have any hope of advancing in the Christian life, of growing to the fullness of this Christian life, the only hope is that you are rooted and grounded in love. You don't do this, the whole thing crumbles. How many times have we seen it? How many times have we seen men who had built magnificent ministries, had all the head knowledge, all the doctrine, all the understanding, all the popularity, all the fame, all the numbers, and it all came crumbling down. And you go to the root and you find what's the problem? It wasn't built on love. Or it was built on a love that was not found in Scripture. It was built on the love that this world calls love. It's the only chance we have. Because the reality is, unless you're rooted and grounded in love like this, you, what do you, you're not going to understand the love of Christ. I submit to you, that's why so many men are so heartless when they consider the cross of Christ. Unless you've been rooted and grounded in love as God defines it, as he's revealed it in the sacred scriptures. What are you going to do whenever we come to a passage like we did uh, I guess it was last Wednesday night when righteousness and mercy kiss. It doesn't mean a lot to you. You don't have any understanding of true, biblical, robust, manly love. That's why we're so unmoved by the cross. That's why the gospel means so little to us. The Apostle Paul is saying it's necessary, absolutely necessary if we are to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. You know how hard it is for me not to say height? There's no H there, but I want to say it every time. The breadth and length and height and depth. We see that word strength again. We like to think of ourselves as fairly strong. It continues to come back to this picture of weakness. This, this word, it's only used this one time in the entire New Testament. This particular word for strength, it's, it's power or ability. It's, it's being fully able to do something. So he's saying you're fully capable. If you have been rooted and grounded in love because Christ dwells in your heart, you are fully capable of comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, there's no object given there. You notice that? It's, it's hard for me to read that. Every, every Sunday morning as I read this passage here at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, I always struggle because I want to insert an object there. What is the height and depth and, and, and length and, and, and breadth of what? Now, there's no shortage of, of answers that men have given to this. Much debate. Some, some people that want to go a, a more allegorical, you know, they say this is, the, this, is the, this is the dimensions of heavenly Jerusalem or something like this. There's others that make a fairly decent argument that, no, this is just the infinitude of God. Talking about just the, the glory, the, the, the infinite nature of all of his perfections, that this is what it is. Or maybe it's some particular perfection. Maybe it's his wisdom or his power, his knowledge. But it, it seems to me, based on the flow of this prayer, it seems to me that very clearly what he's talking about is the love of Christ. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? 
He isn't talking about the scope and scale of our comprehension, our ability to grasp it. He's just talking about his, his love. And he says that we are fully able to comprehend it. This word means to grasp or to seize or to, to overcome something, to obtain it. Think about Philippians 3.12 where Paul talks about straining towards the goal. He says, I press on to make it my own. You, you, you make it your own. You seize it. You grab it. You, you lay hold of it. And my mind immediately goes to, to Jacob wrestling with God. He said, I won't let go until you give me a blessing. I'm seizing it. I'm, I'm grabbing it. You think about the persistent widow that continues to come before the judge and just continue to plead her case over and over and over again. You think about the rude neighbor that wanted some bread and so he keeps knocking at his neighbor's house saying, no, give, give me some bread. This is the picture. We're pressing on towards something. Again, he's already talking to Christians here. But this is the thing that comes as we are firmly rooted and grounded, as, as Christ continues to expand and, and make himself at home within our heart. Now, I don't want to get too grammatical, but, but if you look here, there's only one the in that list. Do you see it? The breadth and length. It's not the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Do you see it? Only one word, the, there. And so... This is one singular thing we might think of it as. And he's, I don't know that the Apostle Paul demands, as a, demands of us that we chase down every single direction. That we figure out the height and the depth and the length and the breadth. But I don't think we're wrong to do that. Because we're going to come on, come back tonight and we're going to talk about this knowing the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. He intends for us to know something here. And so surely we're not doing abuse to the text nor are we... Wasting our time to consider, okay, what is the breadth of Christ's love? What is the width of Christ's love? How broad is the love of Christ? Well, isn't this a whole lot of what the Apostle Paul has told us? He's told us that his love encompasses not just the Jew, but the Gentile. That his love encompasses not just the free man, but the slave. Not just man, but woman. Not just learned, but simple. That the love of Christ is broad. And it's important for us to recognize recognize this because as we look around us we can see so few men coming to Christ the world looks dark even as we look to many within the American evangelical church we wonder is there faith anywhere in the land sometimes we find ourselves like Elijah saying is anyone there anyone left that hasn't bent their knee to Baal and so it's very easy for us to feel like the whole world has just gone dark and where is Christ's love in, in all of this? But God reminds us that the love of Christ is broad. He reminds us that in the end, what we will see is people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and too many saints to count gathered around the throne, singing praises for all eternity. We're reminded that when all is said and done, there will not be one square inch of all the cosmos that has not been touched by the love of Christ, ruled and reigned over by the love of Christ. You remember what God said to Abraham as he enters into covenant with him. He says, look and count the stars if you're able. So shall your, your descendants be. So it seems to me that maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about whenever he gave his kingdom parables and he compared it to a mustard seed. Or to some, some yeast in a lump of in a lump of dough that it takes some time, almost imperceptible at times. It takes some time for this thing to take root. But what if we're in the infancy of the church? I know there's a war going on in the Middle East, by the way. And no, I don't think that means Christ Jesus is coming back in the next seven years. 
What if the church age is just beginning? What if it's yet 10,000 years before Christ Jesus comes? What if it's during that time that through preaching and evangelizing and teaching and catechizing our children that we find the love of Christ spreading out throughout all the earth? How often, and I take time to point this out because how often do I stand in front of you and remind you that so much of what we do today, we're not going to eat the fruit of. It's going to be the generations that follow. And sometimes it can feel fruitless, pointless. With this, with this one little flickering light amongst a bunch of darkness all around us, and what are we doing all this hard work for? What are we striving for? What are we pressing forward towards? But his love is wide and his love is broad. How broad? How wide? Wide enough to include you. Wide enough to include me. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a godly good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. How wide is the love of Christ? See, we think we're on the inside. We like to think, well, yeah, we were near to Christ. We were near to God. We were on the edge of salvation. No, no, no. It, you were further than you could have ever imagined. And the reality is that for most people, it isn't until they realize how far outside the kingdom of God they are, then they are ever ready to turn in repentant faith and trust in him. It's only when you realize that you're so far from Christ that you can't reach him in your own abilities, that your arms aren't long enough. It's only then that you find his love, his hand of love reaching out to save you. So it's wide, it's broad, the breadth and the length. Where did this love of Christ begin? In eternity past. Are you tired of hearing that yet? I pray that you're not. There should be nothing that brings you greater joy and confidence and hope and assurance than this. Christ's love for you began before the world was. So that when you want to look back to when is the genesis of my love, I've got a picture on my phone. My family's getting a lot of play today. Congratulations, girls. I know you love this. I've got a picture on my phone of the moment in which I kind of fell for Amanda. I've shown it to some of you. We were at a high school dance. I was there with her best friend. So I can look back and I can say, that's the moment when my heart was drawn towards my wife soon-to-be wife. So we want to know, when did God's love for us in Christ, when did it fall upon us? Do we look back to the moment of our redemption? Do we look back to that moment when we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the first time it was real and it was everything? Certainly you can go there. Do you look all the way back to the cross of Jesus Christ? Galatians 2.20 says that the Son of God loved me. How do I know he loved me? Because he gave himself for me. So to look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and therein see the Genesis... The moment that his love began? Do I go all the way back to the Garden of Eden? Do I go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God promised the man and the woman that there would be one who would stomp the head of the serpent? That everything that had been lost in the garden would be fixed, plus some, in Christ Jesus. Where do I go to find the beginning, the genesis, the origins of God's love for us? Well, before all of that, before the foundation of the world, to the covenant of redemption when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they agreed together. The Father said, I will send you my son. And you will purchase for yourself a bride. The Spirit will go and He will apply to them the things that you have done. You go all the way back before the foundation of the world. This is why God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33, 
verse 1, excuse me, 31 verse 3, that he has loved us with an everlasting love. This isn't just an eternity future. This is an eternity past, but it does go to eternity future. This is not a fickle love. This is not a love that anything can shake us loose from. So many people, they, they find their greatest sense of hope and joy in those closing verses of Romans chapter 8. Where the Apostle Paul reminds us that he's sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because it began in eternity past and it stretches out to eternity future and nobody gets lost along the way. Mary and Joseph headed on their way back to Nazareth. Somebody looked up and went, we forgot Jesus. God doesn't get to eternity future and look back and say, where is Andrew? I thought you had him. Nor does our sin ever remove us from the love of God in Christ. So we got to stop looking at our circumstances. we got to stop listening to our emotions. we got to stop paying attention to our lying eyes. You believe the word of God. I've loved you with an everlasting love. So many of us have been dumped by those who said they loved us. Whether it was parent, whether it was spouse, whether it was brother, whether it was sister. We've had people that looked us in the eye and say, I love you and I will love you to the end until I don't. Until you're unlovable. But this is never the case with God. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. A love that you could not merit. You did not deserve. A love that didn't originate with you. And therefore, I will love you with an everlasting love. This is why Paul goes on to say, not only the breadth and the length, but the height and the depth. Have you ever heard that expression that somebody is a mile wide and an inch deep? They cover a lot of ground, but they don't accomplish much. For so many people, they have this idea of the love of Christ, and it's really just, it's well-meaning. There's few things that I despise worse than a pastor that stands in the pulpit and says, God's trying to. God loves you, and he's trying to get you to love him back. God loves you, and he's trying to bring you to repentant faith. That's the idea that so many have of this love of Christ, that it is broad and it is lengthy, but doesn't accomplish a whole lot. But he talks about the heights, and we've covered the heights quite a bit. Again, go back to the first chapter of Ephesians, and how often did he talk about us swept up in the heavenly places? Chapter 2, seated with him in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. How high is the love of Christ? How high is the love of God for you in Christ? So high that it sweeps you up into heaven even now. Lifts you up to heights that you could have never imagined. Again, this is an emotion. It would be very easy for me this morning to try and play on your emotions because we're talking about love, a very emotional thing. It would be very easy for us to remove all the theology and all the doctrine and all the heady stuff and me to just whip you up into some emotional frenzy. And you would feel like you floated out of here on angel wings. But it's only those who have their heart rooted in true biblical love. It's only those who have Christ dwelling in their heart that can feel this soaring in the middle of studying word by word through passages of Scripture. How high is his love? So high that you're seated even now in heavenly places, receiving blessings you could never deserve. How deep? Again, I say man will love you as long as you're lovely. As long as it's expedient. But deep waters like this, they run steady. I want you to think about all that God has loved you through. 
Think about how unlovely you were when he found you and think about all you've done even since that day. And think about his pursuing, steadfast, has said love for you. Because it was grounded in eternity past, because it was grounded in his promises, in his nature, in his purpose, and nothing in you. Think about all that he has loved you through. Corey Ten Boom said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You can't go deep enough. You can't go too deep for the love of Christ. Again, I find myself so often on my knees before God in prayer, holding back and hesitant before him because I believe maybe I've crossed that line. Maybe he's finally done with me. And oftentimes in my life, it isn't this acute sin, right? I didn't murder somebody. I didn't kiss somebody that wasn't my wife. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't steal something. It, it's not this acute, it's just that slow, steady, besetting sin in my life. I figure, surely God's done with me by now. He says, look to the depth of his love. You can never exhaust the depths of his love. And this is the beauty of it, is we'll come back tonight and talk about the unsearchableness of, of God's love and how it surpasses all understanding. You go out in the deep water and you can never see the bottom. You can never reach the depths. But the reality is, as one man said, it still comes all the way up to the shore. How deep is God's love? It was deep enough to chase you out. It's deep enough to continue on even in this even in the face of your sin, it was deep enough that it brought him from the heights of heaven to the pits of hell. You don't know the value, the worth, the depth of Christ's love. I want you to consider the level of his condescension. His humiliation and coming and living as us. This isn't a love that loves you for a distance. This is a love that comes near and, and joins you in your suffering and in your weakness and in your humility and taking your sin upon himself. That's the depths of his love. So you want to see something of the, the depths of Christ's love whenever you start to feel like maybe I've gone too far. I'm not feeling particularly loved at this moment. Isn't God, I pray for an emotion or I pray for an experience or I pray for some word of assurance right now. Where do you go? You look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Having been rooted and grounded in this love, you look to the cross of Jesus Christ and you recognize that in those groans of agony, you look to the garden and in the, the blood-soaked tears of agony, as you listen to the cry of his dereliction, as you listen to his pain, as we come back together for Tenere service and, and we read through dramatically the passion story, you look there and you say, that's the depths of Christ's love for me. That's the depths to which he was willing to go to bring me into his love. So in short, what Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter what angle you look at. He, he's inviting us here to, to, to look at whichever direction you want to go. There's always more of his love. And it would be preposterous. Yeah, man. It'd be nuts. <laughs> if it weren't true. If God hadn't revealed it in his word. It would, it, it would be presumptuous for us. To assume that Christ would endure with us like this, to assume that his love would spread out so far and wide, to assume that his love would carry us on to the end, to assume that his love would sweep us up to the heights of heaven. No man would ever dream up a thing like this unless God invited us to it. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, come and explore this. I feel like Abraham. As God takes him up on the mountain, he says, look to the east and look to the west and look to the north and look to the south. All of this is yours. I give to you all of this, inexhaustibly to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south, all of this I give to you in Christ Jesus. He's inviting us to explore it. Do you feel it? In your inner man, 
in your soul? Do you feel in any way moved? Do you feel any way your unworthiness and the hope that should come from recognizing that even in your sin, Christ loves you like this? He says with all the saints, that means it's not just a select few or just some enlightened folks. He's saying amongst all the saints, and it's a picture of, I don't go off into my own individual closet just to feel this. It's here together. How do I see something of the love of Christ? I see it in your eyes, and I see it in your hands, and I see it in your worship. I see it in your sacrifice. Do you see? It's as the, as the body comes together, as we look at the unique way, the wisdom with which God is building the body and the way that we love one another. It's what I saw when I stood here before service began, and I watched as you greeted one another. I saw something of the love of Christ for his people. We enjoy it with all the saints. So I ask again, do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you comprehend it? Have you labeled, labored until you grabbed hold of it? I submit to you if the answer is no, then it's because you're weak. And I know that offends you, but I didn't say it. Paul did. And I'm able to say it freely because I know my own weakness. Why am I not a puddle of mush up here on this place? On this, what do you call it, stage? How am I able to say these words without tears rolling down my face? How am I able to leave this place and go right back to my life of sin? How am I able to ever neglect the gathering together of the saints? How am I ever able to be stingy in my giving or with my talents? How am I ever able to withhold forgiveness from another? It's because I'm weak and I don't believe this. I haven't yet comprehended it, not fully. And so this is a worthy prayer for us. We would pray like this. God, come and strengthen us. By your spirit, come and strengthen us in this. Christ Jesus, come and make your home within our heart. Root and ground our life and love like this so that we may be able to comprehend the immeasurable nature of your love. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we recognize that we only love because you first loved us. But Father, at the same time, we recognize that for many of us, not only are we weak, but we are either bliss, blissfully ignorant of our weakness, content in the safeness and security and comfort of our weakness or just altogether unaware. So Father, I pray that you would come and bring conviction where necessary, expose weakness where necessary, and then by your spirit, fix it. Strengthen and build us up. <clears throat> Root us and ground us in your love and help us to comprehend this love of Christ. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.